You guys may be seated, and for those of you that are utilizing our children's ministry, we we run that through first grade, and you are more than welcome to take your kids back there now. For those of you who have kids that are going to stay with us, we love having children uh, here in the sanctuary with us, and we do just by way of reminder, we kind of have a, a, a mini worship guide for them that they can use to go along with the service, and they can use uh, your uh, worship guide as a cheat sheet, if you will. Um, but we have been going through uh, our confession, the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith, just uh, to, um, we've just been reading it paragraph by paragraph now for the last couple of months, which for us, it not, not only uh, reminds us that we're not uh, a church uh, here in the 21st century just kind of floating out in the ether, that we have a historic faith, um, that we see uh, the doctrines of the Bible really recovered in adversity through the writing of this document uh, from, uh, that was written during the time of the Reformation. And, um, and so, and it summarizes for us key doctrines of Scripture. And so, we're on right now chapter 3, which is of God's decree, and we've uh, read the first couple of um, the first couple of chapters and this, or the first couple of paragraphs, and this morning we're in paragraph three that says, By the decree of God for the manifestation of his glory, some men and angels are predestinated or foreordained to eternal life through Jesus Christ to the praise of his glorious grace, others being left to act in their sin to their just condemnation to the praise of his glorious justice. And so we see. Um, the, the purposes of God in salvation uh, summarized for us in paragraph 3 of chapter 3 of the Confession. But if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the Gospel of Mark. We are in Mark chapter 2, beginning this morning. We've been going through this over the last couple of months uh, as well. The Gospel written by John Mark kind of mentored by the Apostle Peter. We've looked at how uh, in church history that this has been considered in, in some shape, form, or fashion, Peter's memoirs that, uh, that John Mark was just that influenced uh, by uh, the Apostle Peter. And we uh, saw a couple of weeks ago that uh, a lot of stuff happening at Peter's house, okay, and uh, in, including people being healed and uh, one of those people, namely being Peter's mother-in-law. And then we saw last week Christ kind of goes out into other regions of Galilee, and now we're, we're back in Peter's house, okay? And so I'm going to read the first 12 verses, pray, and then we're going to work through it um, based on the takeaways that you can find in your worship guide this morning. So, John Mark, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, he, he wrote these words, the historical account of, of Christ, his person, his ministry, and again, it's in immediate fashion, as you can tell. And again, he entered Capernaum after some days, and it was heard that he was in the house, okay, Peter's house there. Immediately, many gathered together so that there was no longer room to receive them, not even near the door, and he preached the word to them. Then they came to him bringing a paralytic who was carried by four men, and when they could not come near him, not come near Christ, because of the crowd, they uncovered the roof where he was. So when they had broken through, they let down the bed on which the paralytic was lying, and when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven you. 
And some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, why does this man speak blasphemies? Right? And note, right, Jesus wasn't, wasn't killed. He wasn't taken to the cross because he was a good person, because he was healing people, or because he was a prophet. Right? The, that word blasphemies there is a, is, a, is a clear indicator as to what led to the death penalty of, of Christ. Okay? So why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? It's clear there. But immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they reasoned thus within themselves, he said to them, why do you reason about these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, arise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, arise, take up your bed, go to your house. Immediately he arose He took up the bed and he went out in the presence of them all so that all were amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you again for your word. And Lord, I I ask that you would, by your spirit, help us to see the things that we should see and help us to rely on your spirit, Lord, to apply the word to our person. God, that we just don't we don't want to just be hearers of the word, God. Um, we want to be doers of the word. And so God, we ask that you would increase our affections for you, that you would increase our hatred for sin. And God, that having spent time in your word this morning, it would not just inform our heads, God, but it would warm our hearts, motivate our our hands toward laboring in light of the finished work of Jesus Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, we, we've come back to the Apostle Peter's house. And, and again, uh, like I said a moment ago, you can see Peter's influence on Mark just by us working through chapter 1 and now just hear these, these first few beginning verses in chapter 2. Okay, Christ, he's come back to Peter's house. The, the news of, of his return back to Peter's house, it's spread immediately, and there were so many people that were gathered to be near Christ that they couldn't fit, they literally couldn't fit through the door. And, and this is an important detail in our passage of Scripture because it is this detail that's used by John, uh, John Mark, used by Matthew, and used by Luke, uh, the other accounts of, of this historical event here. But it's that detail that leads us to the roof of Peter's home and really thrusts us into this particular narrative. And so this morning, we move from the historical account last week that we saw of Jesus and the leper to now, uh, and and even noting the, the worship, right, and the faith of the leper. We move from that last week to here, the historical account of Jesus and the paralytic where we find faith present here as well. And, and there are three things this morning that, that we're going we're gonna to note uh, about this event. And the first is this, and again, this is in your bulletin, and so don't feel rushed to jot this down. But the, the first thing uh, that we should see from this passage is that we shouldn't grow discouraged in coming to Christ, no matter how dire things are in our lives. We should never grow discouraged in coming to Christ, no matter how dire things are in our life. 
And in, in this account, we have not just the multitude crowding Peter's home, right? His, his very front door, but we have specifically the paralytic and the, the four men, is kind of how they're described here in the text, who took him up onto the roof, right? They removed the roof, and then they lowered him in so that he could be near Christ. And, and Mark uses the, the jam-packed nature of Peter's home to really, for us, demonstrate the perseverance of these five men, right? The four who carried him, the, uh, the paralytic, paralytic in and the paralytic himself. Right? As, as an introvert, I see a crowded place, a restaurant, a party, a concert, and I'm the guy who, when I see it and I'm in my car, I just go ahead and do a U-turn and said, well, we tried. Like, we're, we're, not, getting, we're not getting in there. Uh, now, 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 seeing Christ right, is, is nothing like that, right? Go, going to some crowded event or some crowded place, and, and uh, I'm, not, I'm not trying to equate seeing Christ with that. It's seeing Christ is weightier than that. It's more important than that. But I do want us to note the, the obstacles that were in front of these men, right? There, there were obstacles there. They were carrying a paralytic on a bed. There is this overwhelming crowd there at Peter's house. Right? There, there's not being able to to get through the door, which would have been much easier when you're carrying a man who can't walk on a on a bed. There's having then to to climb up onto the roof and remove the top of the roof to lower him in. And and none of these obstacles seemingly deterred these these four men from bringing the fifth man, the paralytic, to Christ Jesus. And it had nothing to do with whether or not they were introverts or extroverts. It had nothing whatsoever to do with their particular personalities or their, how, how they're wired, if you will. So we have to ask the question when we see this perseverance, we have to ask the question, what's behind it? What's behind it? What's behind the persistence? If not a particular type of of personality, introverted or extroverted, right? What's behind it? And, I, and I've briefly made mention of it already, but the answer for us is in verse 5, if you want to look. Verse 5 says, when Jesus saw their, what? Their faith. When Jesus saw their faith. Right? Not, not just the faith of the paralytic, but the faith of the four men as well is, is what Christ saw and it's what the Holy Spirit of God wants us to see, which is why it was recorded by John Mark and preserved for so many years so that we can open the Word of God and see Jesus noting that. Faith. Christ saw five men full of faith. Now think about this. Their faith, this, this persevering faith, First, okay, we, we know that it's a gift from God himself, right? Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8, eight and 9, make, the Apostle Paul makes clear for us that both grace and faith are a gift from God himself. But this faith that they possessed, it was also eager. It was an eager faith, and it was a faith that was obsessed with Jesus. It was focused on seeing Christ, on being near Christ, in other words, Christ was the object, right? The reason for these men going to such great lengths 
is because Christ was the object of their faith. These men weren't apathetic toward Jesus Christ. They weren't spiritually lethargic. They came to Christ, and when they came to Christ, they were coming to Christ in faith. And if faith, for us, right, shorthand definition, if faith is the substance of things hoped for, if faith is the evidence of things that are unseen, Hebrews 11 verse 1, what they wanted to see of Christ is the very evidence of what is unseen, namely that Christ is God in flesh, right? Christ is God in flesh. And we'll spend some more time on that here in just a moment. And Jesus, in his encounter with them, he doesn't note their desire to be healed, although, of course, the paralytic wanted to be healed. Their faith wasn't in the healing. Their faith wasn't in the prospect of being healed. Their faith was in Christ Jesus, and they knew Christ. They knew that if he wanted to, he could make the paralytic walk because Christ is God. And so Jesus, he saw their faith. And this is important for us to note and spend a few moments on because we, we get discouraged in life, right? And, and we tend to get discouraged too easy in our walks with the Lord, right? We can give up quickly when there's any sort of resistance or when there's any sort of obstacle or there's any sort of conflict in our walking with the Lord. And, and the reason this is the case is because Christ often falls out of view for us, right? He falls out of focus for us, right? Just as Peter saw the waves, right? And, he, and, and when he saw the waves and he, he saw Christ walking on the water, but he saw the waves and he began to, to sink because he took his eyes, his focus off of Christ. So often we're concern, consumed by our particular circumstances and troubles. And as a result, we begin to sink into the oceans of, of despair, right? Or, or to, to use the, the Reformed Baptist John Bunyan's um, illustration, we get taken by the giant called despair, we get captured by him, and despair is a giant because despair eclipses our view of Jesus Christ, as our circumstances and our obstacles and our conflicts often do. As I've been studying the text this week, I've been at the same time meditating on a, a passage of, of Scripture that I thought harmonized well with our passage this morning, and it, it's in Proverbs, and I don't know if I gave it to, to Josh to put up or not. Yep. Um, but Proverbs chapter 22, verse 13, the lazy man says, there's a lion outside. I'll be slain in the streets. That's the mantra of the lazy man, right? You can sense the despair in that proverb, right? Which, what's striking to me about that proverb is there's no debate about whether or not there's a lion outside, is there? And if we harmonize this, and we go back again to the words of the Apostle Peter, in 1 Peter 5, 8, we know that the devil's like a what? A roaring lion, right? Seeking to devour is what the Apostle Peter says, right? In life, it's not a question of whether or not things will be difficult. Things will be difficult. Right? Things will be difficult. It isn't a, a question of whether or not you're going to face dangers or face tribulations of various kinds. You're going to face dangers. You're going to face tribulations. The question is whether or not we're the lazy man who despairs at the thought of a, of a lion 
right? And in loving our lives and trying to save our lives, we actually lose our lives. Or if we, by God's grace, walk in the power of the Holy Spirit of God in the midst of our troubles, in the midst of our obstacles, and live in such a way that we'd rather lose our comforts in our very lives than not see Christ. We want to be a people that see, or we should want to be a people that want to see Christ. Right? The paralytic and his four friends, they were determined to see Jesus, no matter what. Right? And, and who knows whether or not the apostle Peter was able to get insurance to cover the hole they put in his roof. Right? Now, they were determined to see Christ. We're determined to see Christ. Okay, so, so no, matter, no matter our circumstances in life, no matter how dire things may seem, uh, we, we shouldn't allow those things to, to detract, to, to, to knock us off of course from, from savoring all that God is for us in, in Jesus Christ. So that, that's, the, that's the first thing, okay? The second thing is this. Our greatest and most fundamental need is to be forgiven of our sins. Our greatest and most fundamental need is to be forgiven of our sins. Right? And we certainly confess this as a church, but I want to spread this, this doctrine out, if you will, to, to some particular edges for us this morning to demonstrate how often we operate in ways that demonstrate how little consideration that we give to this most fundamental need. If we go back up to verse 2, we see that Mark makes it a point to let us know that what Christ was doing included preaching. It included preaching. It says, quote, and he preached the word to them. And he preached the word to them. And what, what do we know about what it was that Christ was preaching? What do we know about what it was that Christ was preaching? Right? It's, it's not a mystery because Mark has already answered that question for us in chapter 1. If we go back to chapter 1, verses 14 to 15, we see this. After John was put in prison, right, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, quote, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. It's the preaching ministry of Jesus. Right, there is a priority in an emphasis that we see in Christ's earthly ministry, even in the midst of all of the healings that we've already have been covering, even in the midst of all the exorcisms that we see that Christ is performing. And the emphasis is the preaching of the gospel. That's the emphasis. That's why Christ came. Christ preached a message of repentance, a call to, to forsake sin according to the unchanging, enduring moral law of God, all right, to forsake sin according to that law, to walk away from it, and in doing so, embrace him, embrace Christ. And we can't lose sight of that as God's church, because if we lose sight of it, certainly our culture is, is going to lose sight of that most fundamental need. If we're not clear on that most fun fundamental need, our culture is not going to be clear on that most fundamental need. Right? The great multitude, this great multitude coming to Jesus, it was a mixed bag of people. You had religious leaders, right? The scribes who were secretly 
jealous of Jesus, that were embittered at the very existence of Jesus, and they were hardened toward him in his particular ministry, and they sought to discredit him every step of the way. And when that didn't work, they deceptively hatched a plan to murder him, to have him executed. Now, you had people that came to Christ, and we could guess that this might be the majority of people, to get something from him. Right? What can I get from Christ? Namely, to be healed of, of various diseases. You had demon-possessed people as well. And then you had people who in faith saw who Jesus really was, right? the Son of Man, truly God, and they confessed him as such. Yet this great multitude that contained all these different types of people, Christ preached the gospel uncompromisingly. He preached the gospel to all of these different types of people. There were plenty of opportunities for Jesus to have neglected the preaching of the gospel. Lots of opportunities for that. There were plenty of opportunities for him to spend all of his time meeting the immediate needs from, from a worldly perspective, the immediate needs to the, the neglect of the most important need. Plenty of opportunities from that. And we can't unhitch the, the miracles of Christ Jesus from the preaching of his word, which was him preaching himself, him offering himself as the sufficient savior for those who confess their sins and repent of their sins. We can't separate those things. So we see in the very ministry of Christ, that he's not sidetracked by what we would see as the more urgent and pragmatic issues in society. We see that in his very interaction with the paralytic. Look at, back at verse 5 with me. This is the first thing that happens when Christ sees this man. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven you. Son, your sins are forgiven you. Matthew records it this way in Matthew chapter 9, verse 2. Be of good cheer, your sins are forgiven. I love that added detail. Now this, it reminds me of Psalm chapter 32, verse 1. Blessed, and, and, and we kind of quote this a lot here at Deer Park. Blessed or happy, you could translate that, verse, that word blessed to happy. Happy, blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is forgiven covered. And this is critical for us to see. Right, we know that Christ healed this man. And we'll talk about that in a moment. But what if he didn't? What if he didn't? There were, in fact, plenty of people Christ did not heal. And there are plenty of sick people living today. And many of us in this room this morning are struggling with various ailments. So, Let's do a thought experiment for just a moment. What if Christ said to the paralytic, be of good cheer, your sins are forgiven, and then he instructed his four friends to carry the paralytic back out? How would that make you feel if the story ended that way? How would that make you feel? All right? In our flesh, perhaps we would be tempted to say, well, that doesn't seem very compassionate. That doesn't seem very compassionate. And if we don't think that we wrestle with that, look at how we often address suffering in our society. Now, this is where I want to spread out 
this doctrine for us a little bit on, on just the fundamental need being our, our sin needing to be forgiven. I want to I spread this out to the edges of our culture, right? The, the truth that everyone, again, fundamental need is to be forgiven. I want to I wanna spread, spread it out to show us how easily we lose sight of it. Look at how we think about issues of justice in our society for just a moment. Now, we're, we are reactionary, and this isn't the case with Christ. This isn't the case with Christ. Oftentimes when we see various sufferings in society, we tend to only focus and emphasize what we perceive to be more urgent, which is to us, even as Christians, the here and now, what we can see with our eyes and what we can touch. And when that's overemphasized, as it often is, we end up adapting methods that neglect and even harm the souls of the individuals that we think we're helping. We, we see this in how we latch on to movements even that are antithetical to the gospel. We don't even give any consideration about how various movements or organization give the appearance of justice, how th- those movements or organizations are giving the appearance of justice, yet they're promoting things that degrade the soul that spiritually harm individuals created in the image of God. We don't see how our methods, when not subordinate to the fundamental need of one needing to be forgiven and reconciled in Christ Jesus, causes discord and envy and bitterness and strife in the souls of the individuals that we claim that we're trying to help. And if we don't think that that's happening within the church, the very evidence of that is the discord and the envy and the bitterness that we see in society at the moment. Generally speaking, this is behind about every hashtag movement out there, by the way. It's behind just about every Facebook group or social media um, um, driven political ideology that we tend to take in sound bites without giving any consideration as to how what we're taking in and then propagating or retweeting rubs against a biblical worldview. And well-meaning Christians get sucked into this because we rightfully care about justice. We rightfully care about justice. We should, as Christians, care about justice. But it has to be in its proper place, and it must do good to both the body and the soul of the individual that we're claiming we're trying to help. If it helps the body and it harms the soul, it's to be rejected. And if, again, we're not clear on that, nobody's going to be clear on that. If, if in our efforts to help people, if we're helping their immediate need while at the same time partnering with or propagating things that do eternal harm to them, we need to repent of our sin and seek a better path for justice. Seek a better path, right? Every individual ever created has an eternal soul and we are called by God to do eternal good to them without discrimination. And we do that to all of those that God sovereignly places in our path. The intentionality of Christ here to preach repentance in the gospel and his emphasis of preaching the forgiveness of sins, it should shape our approach to addressing all people, including 
sufferers, including sufferers. Right? The, pre- the preaching ministry of Jesus, it should provide for us the riverbanks for us determining whether or not to get behind any sort of movement, any sort of political party or charity that claims to care about alleviating suffering. Right? We have to stop compromising as a church. We have to stop compartmentalizing as a church, and we have to prioritize gospel work, gospel preaching. So our greatest and most fundamental need is to be forgiven. We can't forget that. It's the foundation that we're building on for any sort of issue of, of, of justice in society. But that isn't to the detriment of the body. That's not to the detriment of the body. Jesus did, in fact, heal the paralytic. He did healing, right? And just as Jesus isn't a materialist in that he only addresses uh, uh, the, 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 uh, the soul or the body, excuse me, so too Jesus isn't a Gnostic that, that sees the material, that sees the body as, as, as a sort of prison that the soul is waiting to escape, right? When, when Christ returns to make everything new, Right? Our souls will be reunited with our bodies. Jesus bodily resurrected from the dead. Our bodies are not bad. We're just waiting to receive a glorified body. And so bodies and souls matter. It's a distinctly Christian position to see people, again, made in the image of God with a body and with a soul. Right? In other words, we're, to use a, a, a particular word to capture this, we as Christians are dichotomists. We're dichotomists, seeing the body as body, seeing the person as body and soul. And in addressing the soul, we shouldn't be cold or indifferent toward suffering, toward the body. We need to labor to address both. First John three seventeen. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? The love of God is showcased in us as we seek to meet material needs as well. Christ addressed body and soul. We're his hands and feet. We must labor to address both. So a more holistic and robust approach, it should be one that prioritizes, and, and we should prioritize, the spiritual condition of an individual. Okay, that's, that is for us the top tier concern while seeking to meet the physical needs according to the abilities and possessions that God has individually gifted us with and has gifted us with corporately as a church body, okay? The third thing, if you're taking notes, okay? So our second thing, our most fundamental need is to be forgiven. Third thing, Jesus is clear about who he is. He's clear about who he is. All right, we see Christ in our text with the authority to forgive sins because he's truly God. He's truly God. There's nothing ambiguous here. All right, Jesus forgiving sin was a clear claim to divinity. All right, this is what, why Christ was eventually crucified. He was crucified not because, again, he was a good teacher, not because he was um, uh, going around healing people and casting out demons. He was crucified because he claimed divinity. He claimed to be equal with God. He claimed to be God. And, and while this 
claim was corroborated by eyewitnesses and by the miracles of Jesus, it was used. This claim was used by those religious leaders who were hard-hearted to push again for the death penalty. Because for the religious leaders to declare, again, the forgiveness of sins is something only God has the authority to do. And they were right about that. Only God has the authority to forgive sins. That's why they call it blasphemy in our passage of Scripture this morning. All right, in, in Christ forgiving the sins of this paralytic, it caused this sort of inward brooding in the religious leaders. And as they are brooding, Mark demonstrates for us that Christ knew their inner thoughts and the, in the, their in, in the intentions, if you will, in their very hearts. In other words, we, we see in Christ here the divine attribute of, of omniscience, which is Christ being all-knowing. It's an incommunicable attribute of God, right? Only God can be all-knowing. Look back at verses 6 to 11. And some of the scribes were sitting there. They were reasoning in their hearts, okay? That's the, that's the brooding there. Why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But immediately when Jesus perceived, which is an interesting word, that means to have full knowledge. Christ isn't sitting there like reading, reading their body language, if you will. Right? Christ knew their hearts, and he knew their hearts because he's God. Okay? So Jesus perceived in his spirit that they reasoned thus within themselves. And he said to them, why do you reason about these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say the paralytic, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, arise and take up your bed and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, arise, take up your bed and go to your house. And really the answer to Christ's question is that only God can do both. That's the answer. Only God can do both. Only God can heal, and only God can forgive sinners. And he demonstrates, Christ demonstrates in his ability to heal the paralytic, he demonstrates his authority to forgive sins. Right? Christ here, he, he chases down as well for us the hard-heartedness of these religious leaders by revealing their hearts openly and demonstrating to them his divinity even further, the very thing that they were wrestling about with in their person, Right? He kind of chases it down. So Jesus is, is clear about who he is. It's not ambiguous. And our faith should be emboldened by what we see here in our text. Right? There's a teaching that asserts that Jesus suspended his deity when he became a man. And, that, and, 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 and this teaching is called a canonic theology. And it gets the word canonic from the Greek word kenosis that Paul uses in Philippians chapter 2 when he says that Jesus, quote, emptied himself, right? That phrase can be confusing. I like the way the NKJV translates it and says that Christ became of no reputation because that captures the passage, the intent there better. But here's the passage, verses 5 to 8 in Philippians 2. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. There it is. Taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death 
on a cross. So this teaching that Christ emptied himself of his deity or some aspects of his deity is a teaching, again, called canonic theology, and it was popular in the 1800s, but it's still alive and well today. Maybe you've heard, maybe you've heard that teaching, even though you didn't know that that was a, an official theological position. It's even prevalent in, a, in an old hymn penned by John Wesley called, And Can It Be? And the line goes, He emptied himself of all but, does anybody know how it finishes? Love. He emptied himself of all but love. Right? Christ emptying himself, as Paul mentions in Philippians 2, it has nothing to do with the divine nature. Nothing to do with Christ's divine nature. And what we need to ensure that we see and confess, what we see with Jesus' earthly ministry, his authority to forgive sins, his omniscience on display to these religious leaders, it should clarify for us that Jesus does not and cannot cease to be truly God. John Owen says, although he was on earth as the son of man, yet he ceased not to be God thereby in his divine nature, he was then also in heaven. Jesus is truly God for all eternity, and he added humanity to his deity without diminishing any of his deity, right? His emptying himself had to do with his position, which is why he became of no reputation suits, again, the intent of the passage better. Christ was exalted and in glory with the Father and the Spirit, and he emptied himself or became of no reputation by becoming a servant, by becoming a man, by condescending to us. And in his humiliation, he's obedient to the will of the Father to the death, even death on a cross. Right? But Christ's, his humiliation, him being of no reputation, it isn't forever as we see in the latter part of Philippians chapter 2, right? Verses 9 to 11. He says, therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so we see Christ as truly God. And this has been evident for us as we've journeyed in Mark thus far. And and my prayer is, is that it encourages us and it equips us to confidently declare Christ as the eternal God. His humanity didn't diminish any of his deity. So we see this morning we should come to him. Come to Jesus no matter the circumstances in our lives. And we see that we come to him and in coming to him, we see that our greatest need, our most fundamental need is to be forgiven. And he's acquired forgiveness in his adding of his humanity to his deity and condescending and taking our sins and going to the cross and bodily rising from the dead. He can forgive sins. He's the only one with the authority to do that very thing. He's clear on who he is. And he's our eternal God who's now exalted and he's sitting at the Father's right hand. Why don't we go to the Lord in prayer? God, we thank you for time in your word. God, we thank you for just how your word provides clarity for us on who Christ is, God, and his power and his authority, Lord, which is inherent in himself, God. And God, help his life and ministry 
so far as it depends on us, Lord, to shape our life and our ministry, which is to be an, an extension of his life and ministry. And so encourage us, strengthen us, and we give you all praise, all honor, all glory. In Jesus' name, amen.